Well, that's okay. While you're setting that up, I will tell y'all that the dash, Lewis was almost right. Bless his heart. We did play racquetball this week. And, and, and while I may have been dashing around the core a bit, I think ultimately it was his hopes that were dashed. And so... <laughs> So if that helps you remember the dash in uh, biblicalliteracy.com, please remember it. Uh, We do have the dash in there. Um, Thank you for coming. We've got a full crew today. If you need a lesson, raise your hand and we'll hand out some of these lessons. Dorothy down here. Oh, okay. We, um, um, uh, Kathleen Hauser's got an extra one. There are a couple extras Howard can sort of help pass around. Um, I'm sorry that we're out. We have a full crowd today, but, uh, you know, by Wednesday you can download it off the internet. Um, we have been teaching church history literacy. And uh, uh, we are really nibbling in the 400s, but we've got a few things left in the 300s we haven't covered. I'm not covering those today. Because this is Priority Sunday, we knew we'd have a lot of people who are here. I saw some faces come in the door that I haven't seen in a while in this class. And the class is big enough to where when you're not here, I I, I don't just call y'all, but I notice. And when you come in and you're here, it's a real encouragement to me. So thank y'all for coming here today. Uh, uh, I I appreciate it. It makes it... uh, easier to to do this work, uh, to get ready for this class. If we were to go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, one thing that would strike us over and over is how often Jesus taught about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses the phrase over and over and over. Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was doing this teaching, the main kingdom that anybody would have known about that was present at that time was the kingdom of Rome. And so when people think kingdom... See, we say the kingdom of God and we look back at history at what Jesus taught. And what I want to urge you to do right now is try to go back at the time of Jesus and be one of His audience members. Be one of the folks He was talking to. Because when Jesus would talk about the kingdom of God coming, when He would say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, People didn't think in terms of the church. People didn't think in terms of what church history was going to be. People thought most likely about the Roman Empire, for example. The Roman Empire was the kingdom that people knew about at the time. And for Jesus to come, and it's in Mark 1.15 where He says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For Jesus to be saying that already starts bubbling in the minds of at least the Jews who are listening to him, that there's going to be an earthly kingdom. See, the Jews understood the Messiah, the coming Messiah, would be three things. He would be prophet, priest, and king. And the Jews were ready at some points in Jesus' ministry to make Jesus a king by force, especially when he brings Lazarus back from the dead. That's the kind of king I'd follow into battle. I mean, you got the medic show right there. Okay? This is, I mean, one of the biggest problems with kings and battles and armies is what? Supplies. Okay? How do you feed an army? Jesus can do it with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. I mean, this guy could make a tremendous earth king. 
And the people are thinking that. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. They're saying, yeah, this is what we've been waiting for. Let's overturn the Romans. And then he says, not only repent for the kingdom of God is near. And by the way, you know those Jews were thinking, not Jesus is going to become Caesar Augustus. They're thinking this is going to be expansion of the temple. Return of one greater than King David or King Solomon. If this was Herod's temple, Jesus is going to come and he's going to just blow that away. Now, of course, if you work at Herod's temple or you make your living from Herod's temple or you're affiliated with the power structure of Herod's temple, I'm sure the idea of Jesus and his coming kingdom was not thrilling news to you because he seems to have his own little crowd of people and you're in the crowd over here that evidently he's going to supplant. But this is what Jesus was teaching. And Jesus would tell people that the kingdom, it's not really like uh, you're thinking. The kingdom's the treasure that's hidden in a field. And someone who knows that treasure's there is going to sell everything they've got and they're going to go buy the field. And the people are hearing that and they're thinking, yeah, this is a valuable kingdom. This is a kingdom you'd sell everything you've got to have a piece of, to be in. This is where you want to be. This is the kind of kingdom. I will sell everything I've got and go dig in the dirt that I've bought to find that pearl of great price, to find that kingdom. And so this is it. And, 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 and you know who's feeling good about this? The down and out people. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. They get the kingdom. The persecuted people are going to get the kingdom. Well, now, if you're persecuted and you're down and out and you're downtrodden and your life stinks, this is good. This is, uh, this is like, uh, take all of the Lord High Muckety Muck people whose lives are dandy and who make it on the cover of uh, People magazine and you dump them and the downtrodden are going to get the kingdom. You know what else? Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All of those rich people that have had you under their thumb, they ain't getting in. I mean, this kingdom's got appeal, it's got appeal to the masses. It's got appeal to the poor. It's got appeal to the persecuted. It's got appeal to the downtrodden. It's got appeal to the people on the outs instead of the ends. But it's not just that easy. Jesus goes a step further. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you don't get to certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees, these guys are so righteous, it oozes out of every pore. They dress righteous. They pray righteous. They walk righteous. They touch righteous. You're a Gentile, they won't touch you. They eat righteous. They memorize righteous. They speak righteous. Oh, don't get me wrong. Jesus will tell you they're whitewashed tombs. They look just so pretty on the white, but inside they're a bunch of dead bones. The boy, in terms of righteousness. Now that's kind of a tough one to get in. 
But the kingdom's sounding pretty good. Now, the power structure's not real in on this kingdom, so they see that Jesus gets arrested, and Jesus gets brought before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says to him, Are you a king? Are you? And Jesus' response is, Yes, but my kingdom, in spite of what my followers would like it to be, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom's from another place. Now look at the Roman kingdom at the time. People, scholars, historians, there's this whole field of history. This will blow you away. Okay? There's a whole field of study on how many people inhabited the Roman Empire. I, I can think of a few other things that are a little bit better to do with my time. But there are people who have like famous reputations staked on this. There are the high population group and the low population group. I don't care. Somewhere between 55 and 120 million people in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire stretches through the green there. That's a lot of people and that's a big empire. That is the civilized world at the time. Okay? That's the kingdom of the civilized world. There is no competition. And that 55 to 120 million has its kingdom while Jesus is on the cross dying for his. Jesus is on the cross dying and Jesus' kingdom has a handful of people down there at the foot of the cross. So you got 55 to 120 million in the Roman kingdom. You got a handful around the cross. Nonetheless, if you look close up above Jesus, you will see, um, we'll blow it up there, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Jews didn't like that sign. And technically it's not correct because he's the king of kings, not just the king of the Jews. But that's the sign that Pilate put up or had cause to put up. Now, Jesus dies and um, says uh, the kingdom of God does not come with careful observation. The kingdom of God's within you. Okay, now this starts getting kind of fuzzy as people try to put this together. The kingdom of God is within you. Jesus is the king. He's got a kingdom. He dies for his kingdom. To be in his kingdom, you've got to have righteousness that exceeds the most righteous people on earth. And his kingdom seems to have just a couple of little people in it, maybe, at the foot of the cross. But he says, the kingdom's within you. And this reverberates through his people's minds after his death and his resurrection. You know that they're thinking about it. That Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, are the people who have been born again, who have been called out of the world. There's a Greek word for called out. It is, anybody know? Ecclesia. Ecclesia is translated in your Bibles. Do you know how it's translated? Church. The church. The church in the Bible is not a building. 
The church in the Bible is not a 501c3 corporation. The church in the Bible is not uh, a, a denomination. The church, as the word is used in the Bible, is the kingdom of God on earth among men and women. It is, it is those of us who have been called out, those who have been born again, those of us whose righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. By the way, if you follow me, you'll find out that my righteousness exceeds the Pharisees not because of how holy I am. You'll quickly write that off. But because I wear the righteousness of Christ. And his righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees beyond measure. And that's what the kingdom is. And so the kingdom, the church, it may start over here in Jerusalem... In Acts chapter 2, but if we follow it very shortly, we know just from Acts chapter 2 that people from Rome and people from Egypt were there. Not only people from Rome and people from Egypt, but people from Mesopotamia. Not only Mesopotamia, but people from over in modern Libya. Not only there, the church quickly spreads and goes up to Antioch. Not only in Antioch, but Paul enters the scene and starts doing mission trips. And he starts starting churches all over what we would consider southeast Turkey. The churches of Galatia. He wrote the Galatian letter to him, And then he expands his mission trips and he starts going further. He starts going over into Ephesus and other areas of Turkey that are even further. He makes it into Greece. Not only in Greece, but in Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece. And he starts churches in Thessalonica. And he starts churches in Berea. And he starts churches in Philippi. And he starts churches in, in uh, uh, Corinth. And even converts some in Athens. We know, if we read the rest after the book of Acts finishes, that from the island of Crete, Paul at some point did mission work. Paul did mission work in western Greece. Paul does mission work, if we believe writings of the early church, in the far west, in Spain. And at this point, we've sort of left what the Bible tells us about the church's growth because we've run out of the time frame. But we enter into where we went in church history. And we see the church blankets not only the Roman Empire, but as we studied a couple of weeks ago, even Ireland with St. Patrick. And the church has expanded and spread. And while the Roman Empire had 55 to 120 million and the church had a handful in 30 AD, that handful, by the work of the Holy Spirit, have taken the world by storm. The kingdom of God stretches throughout the known civilized world. Now, let's get a different graphic. This is the Roman Empire in the 300s. And the Roman Empire was divided up into all of these little ruling areas. All right? Um, the Roman Empire uh, 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 is, is, uh, is huge. It's overextended. It's got, it's got the problems that come from that. Uh, I want to give you an example. Um, in uh, uh, April 21st, 753, that's A.D., not B.C. That's a typo. That comes from doing this at 3 in the morning. Um, in 753, actually, that's not. I'm sorry. That's when Rome was founded. 
April 21st, 753 B.C. Uh, is at least when the Romans thought their town was founded. Do you, we, we, we must remember that, that Rome, this was the Roman Empire. Rome was the center. Rome's founded in, in 753 B.C. And all calendars, all calendars are dated from, from that date. Um, who writes checks? Okay, good bit of us. Um, I have a problem when I write checks. Do you ever write a check and especially like the first week of January find yourself putting the last year down? Okay, I'm still putting 1998 down. I don't know why. I've never been able to get out of 1998 when I write checks. Um, by the way, a lot of places will accept them, which tells you that people don't really look. But we're in 2006, right? And when you write a check, you put 2006 down there. We'll see why later. We'll meet uh, in 525 A.D., uh, Dennis the Short. Um, uh, his Latin name was Dionysius Exegus, but it means Dennis the Short. And uh, like Louis Exegus, you know, we call him Louis the Short. It, one of those, one of those uh, uh, phrases... He's the one who came up with this ADBC stuff. Until Dennis the Short came around in 525 and at the request of the Pope came up with that stuff, everybody dated by the founding of Rome. If you're writing a check back then, at the time we consider zero, you'd put the year 753 because it was 753 years AUC since the founding of of Rome. Um, um, so that's what it was. Now, uh, the Roman Empire has been divided in the 300s periodically into separate sections for ruling because it's so far flung. And then, as we talked about, Constantine reunites it, and Constantine reunites it around the church. He makes, uh, Constantine makes in 325, in essence, the church the glue that holds the empire together. And all of a sudden the church, and if you go back and you haven't been here, but our lessons where we looked at the martyrdoms and all of the problems and the heresies of the church, you hit 325 and now all of a sudden the emperor makes the church the glue of the empire. And I got to tell you, all the pagans aren't real happy. Now, let me give you an event. Here's the event where I thought I'd messed up. July 21st, 365 A.D., there's a massive earthquake that does a massive amount of damage in the Mediterranean world. Do you know why there was an earthquake? Anybody suggest? We got any geologists? Plate tectonics. Very good. This guy, like, who needs the website? Plate tectonics. Yep, you see, right in here, in the Mediterranean world, whoops, we're going the wrong way. Whoa, 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 go back. Where was it? There. Plate tectonics. Yeah, right in there. Okay, it's disappearing. I can't do anything about it. Um, there is a, 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 you know, the plate tectonics says that our crust has these plates of land and, and that these plates brush up against each other and push against each other and move against each other and, and pull and push. And, and this causes earthquakes. And we know that now. They didn't know about plate tectonics back then. 
All they know is there's a massive earthquake that's just wiped out a ton of people and a ton of buildings. It's ruined people economically. It has made Katrina and New Orleans uh, 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 on on an international scale. Okay? Why did this earthquake happen? Well, the people back then that didn't understand plate tectonics could come up with a couple of options. First of all, this earthquake happened, according to a lot of Christians, because of sin and heresy of the people. This was God's judgment. I mean, you might have heard people say that after Katrina. This was God's judgment. Uh, This was because of sin. This was because of heresy. And that's what a lot of people said. Now, the... The, the, there's an issue there in a sense because the, the world, you know, the Christians are saying that. Do you know what the pagans are saying? Yeah, you're half right. This is a judgment from the gods, but it's not because of sin and heresy. It's because of Christianity. We never had this problem when we were worshiping Zeus and we were worshiping Apollos and we were worshiping all these gods. You quit worshiping them. You quit giving them their their offerings. You quit sacrificing to them. You've pulled everybody away to some little uh, pagan frou-frou Jewish thing. And now, what do you expect? Of course they're going to wipe you out. This is Christianity's fault. And... uh, um, um, This debate rages on, all right? Now, I bring that up because of what happens a little bit later. Um, I want to fast forward into the late 300s, the early 400s, and we're doing a little bit of extra history here, but, but I think it's important to understand what's going on. There's trouble in the east. You see, we have in this area north of, uh, of the Roman Empire the Visigoths, The Roman Empire, the border for the Roman Empire in that area is the Danube River, okay? By and large, except for this little area where Constantine went north, the Danube River was the uh, northern border. Uh, The the main reason why is north of the Danube, you had a lot of forest, and it wasn't easy for Roman armies to go conquer the forest. Forests are kind of where all of the little tribes and and, uh, Gothic people can hide behind the trees and do guerrilla warfare. And the Roman armies were used to just marching, you know, through the fields and all. They don't have fields. So the Romans didn't really care that much for the forest. They stayed out of the forest and just stayed south of the Danube River. That was kind of the border of the Roman Empire. But the Visigoths are there. Visa meaning uh, coming from the Latin for west. But uh, the Visigoths are there, and their cousins, the Ostrogoths, or the Eastern Goths, are over on the other side. Now, you've heard the word Gothic. That was their language. These were Gothic, the original Gothics. I don't know that they dressed in black but, and had, like, the fingernails painted, but these are the Gothics, okay? Now, by and large, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Romans had found peace with each other. And the peace was the Danube River. And the Goths would stay north of the Danube and the Romans had the south. The Romans lived in towns, by and large. They were urban people. The, the Goths were rural. They'd have some farms and they'd live in amongst the forest. And they might have little villages, but they weren't city people. There's a problem, though. In the late 300s, there's pressure coming from the east. Nobody really knew what it was. 
Rome didn't know what it was. But this pressure comes against the Ostrogoths. They're people who are um, um, riding horses bareback fast with bows and arrows and able to ride horses bareback fast and shoot their bows and arrows real fast with incredible accuracy. Nobody had that kind of equipment. That's really evidently hard to do. I have enough trouble riding a horse without falling off. Uh, I will tell you, I don't have time. Um, I will tell you, I, I tried to take horseback riding lessons, and I got on the horse, and I'm trying to ride it, and I start sliding down in the saddle, and, and I'm sliding down, and I try to pull up and try to get your hand on the horn and pull yourself up. I couldn't. I kept sliding down. Horse kept going. I kept sliding pretty soon. I, I tried to jump. I couldn't. My foot was stuck in the stirrup, and I mean, my head starts bouncing on the ground. I probably would not be here today if Bob the Walmart greeter had not unplugged the horse. And, <laughs> um, these guys, though, are, are incredible horsemen, okay? These guys are... Red, and do you know who they are? These are the Huns. These are the Huns. We'll meet one of them, Attila, just a few decades later. But the Huns are coming... And they're putting pressure on the Ostrogoths. And the Ostrogoths, as fierce as they were, they're not happy. So they're starting to move. They're fleeing the Huns. Attila's daddy is doing it at this point. Or granddaddy. The Huns are forcing the Ostrogoths. Well, what do you think the Visigoths are doing? Yeah, this isn't hard, is it? Okay. In fact, the Visigoths go to the Romans and say, Hey, you know, we've been attacking you before. You've been attacking us. At this point, we'd like asylum, please. Can we be illegal aliens and can we come into your border? We just need a place to live. We need the safety you offer. We'll do anything you want to do. The Roman emperor says, Sure, come on down. In fact, we'll give you food. This is a great opportunity because the Roman emperor, he's got, his army's turned out to be kind of a pushover army at this point. They don't keep their armor good. They've gotten all soft and wishy-washy. So he thinks, hey, if I've got the Goths up there and bring them down and I make happy with them, then I'm going to have kind of like a border guard. The problem is, is the Romans that, the, that are up there in charge of the border decide that they can get rich off the Goths. And uh, things don't work out real well, and ultimately it causes for a fight. And so the fight takes place um, here in Adrianople, which is uh, 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 still part of Turkey, but just barely now. It's Turkey, Bulgaria, Greece area. And uh, two-thirds of the Roman army is slaughtered. The Goths just wipe them out, including the emperor who is killed. Rome would have crumbled at that point were it not for the, the, the Romans tapping this general, a fellow named Theodosius. And Theodosius comes in as the next Roman emperor. And I, I think from like a period of like six months, he went from farming his farm to being the Roman emperor with these huge armies. And uh, he was incredibly effective. He was incredibly effective. He was also a uh, Trinitarian Christian. Uh, he believed in the Trinity. He was the Roman emperor when uh, a bishop or someone got called in before him. And uh, Theodosius, it was bring your son to work day or something, the equivalent of it. So Theodosius has his boy there on the throne with him. 
And the Roman bishop comes in and properly does obeisance to the emperor Theodosius. He bows and he does, you know, all of the things. And then he looks at the boy and it's kind of... Louis, can you come up here? See? Okay. This is Louis the emperor. I am the duke. Louis the emperor. Oh, it's good to see you. Uh, may you be honored. May you live long. May God bless you. And uh, then... The bishop he usually does that on the racquetball court. <laughs> I had that coming. Anyway, then the bishop turns to the boy, okay? And he goes up to the boy and says, Hey, you little nooger head! How are you? <laughs> See ya. And the bishop walks out. Well, the king goes crazy. The emperor, Theodosius, he says, You don't treat my son that way. I am. My son, and my son is me. And, and, and Theodosius has him th- thrown out. Not only thrown out, he's going to get a severe beating at least. And right as he's going, right as the bishop's going out the door, he turns back around and he yells in, King, that was a parable. Don't let anybody treat the son different than they treat the father. That's what the Arians are doing with Jesus. So the king says, time out. Oh, yeah, this is that Trinity thing y'all have been fighting about. Okay, Jesus is the same as the Father. That makes sense. And, and, and brings the bishop back in and, and learns a valuable lesson. Theodosius is a Trinitarian. It was under Theodosius that the Council of Constantinople in 381 was called, where finally the Arian heresy was sort of stamped out, and we dealt with that. Theodosius would have been a great king for a long time. The Roman Empire would have done super, except for the fact that he chose, uh, 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 didn't choose, but he died at the age of 50. And when he died, he made kind of a big mistake. He left his empire to, uh, oh, before he died, he made kind of this buffer zone with the Goths. He made peace with them. Things are okay. He dies and he leaves his kingdom. Half of it goes to um, Honorius. That's the, he gets the western half. The eastern half goes to his other son, Arcadius. And there's a problem with these guys uh, running the kingdom. It's called incompetent and unqualified. Okay? <laughs> Arcadius is 17 years old and he's supposed to be running half the Roman Empire. And how about his brother, Honorius? Honorius is 11. Okay, I have kids. Can you imagine an 11-year-old running the world? I don't care how you feel about George Bush. I don't care how you feel about Tony Blair. I don't care how you feel about almost any world leader. At least they're not an 11-year-old kid. Okay? You have an 11-year-old kid running half the kingdom, and quite frankly, it just doesn't work. And in 410 A.D., one goth named Alaric just decides this is a little bit too much and he makes an end run and he comes down and he sacks Rome. 410. Now Rome was founded 753. It's been around for almost 1,200 years. Never been sacked. If you had gone to a Christian in that day, they would have told you the Roman Empire is going to last forever. The Roman Empire, Augustine said, the Roman Empire is the final kingdom. 
in Revelation. The church really believed it was the Roman Empire. And, and, and don't you know the church, there were a lot of people saying that uh, this is the end of the world. Jesus is coming back. Think about it. We've got earthquakes. We've got wars and rumors of wars. The gospel has been preached throughout the known civilized world. All of the signs are there. And the city of Rome was sacked. And when that happened, there were three kinds of viewpoints that went out. Why was Rome sacked? Okay. This is like the tectonic plate theory. Okay. I'll give you three suggestions. One of them is mine. Two of them were being floated by theologians at the time. It was too weak to withstand the Goths and the Huns. That's mine. Rome had turned from its gods to Christianity. See, right before it got sacked, Theodosius had gone in to Rome itself and uh, gone to the Senate and not only had torn down the final idols, but had issued an edict that, that Christianity was the official religion of the empire. Not just an okay religion, it was the religion. And all of the efforts were put into converting all of the pagans in the countryside. Now, other people said this is because Rome was being punished for its sins and its heresies. And it had sins and heresies. i got to tell you, we'll talk about this when we clean up some, but in the 300s, wacko things were happening to the church, in my opinion. For example, you start converting all these pagans who believe in many gods. Do you know what they start doing? They come to Christianity and say, okay, we'll believe in one god, but uh, uh, this is when you see the rise of what are called Christian relics, the bones of the saints. And, oh, if I touch the bone of the saint, then all of a sudden I'm going to get healed. Or, oh, you know, you know, some guy has a dream, and in the dream he finds the bones of Stephen, the first martyr, and they're carried, you know, and, and all these churches are starting to build up all these relics and stuff so that you can come there and this has got the treasure and make your venture and come over here. It almost becomes even a commercial industry. But it's real easy for the pagans who used to believe in a whole bunch of gods now to say, okay, well, we'll only believe in one god, but we also will believe that all these relics have power as well. Um, so, so there are sins, there are heresies. Uh, uh, now, enter Augustine. Augustine is writing, and after the fall of Rome in 410, he writes a book called The City of God. And in it, Augustine says something that I think is very profound. He says, oh, yeah, there are kingdoms. Here it is. There is the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of Satan. And there are kingdoms, plural, of men. But these are not the same thing. And Augustine tells people that you cannot say that the Roman Empire, as Christian as it became, with the official religion, it never was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that's eternal. That you've got to be born again to be in, that, that, that requires a righteousness that exceeds that of the most righteous people, one that's very difficult for someone with riches to ever make it into because it requires humility, it requires a rebirth, it requires a coming to God on God's terms. 
And Augustine says, don't ever make the mistake of thinking the kingdom of God is the same as the kingdom of men. Because it's not, it never has been, it never will be. He does say that the kingdom of men need to try and find their place with the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of Satan. But he says, let's keep the difference there. I'll tell you somebody who's got some insight in this for modern day age that I read last night. I read the Newsweek interview with Billy Graham. It's on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, I couldn't find the U.S. cover, so I got off the Internet an international cover. But if you have not read that, uh, get it. Go get it and read it. An incredible interview. Rome Falls. Here are the effects real quick before we, uh, and we'll be looking at these in the weeks to come. Effects of the fall of Rome. First of all, it affects society. When the Germans or the, the Goths come in and, and they, they change language, they speak German. And, and we wind up with kind of this mix between German and Latin. The languages start mixing. Clothing changes. The Germans, uh, you, you, Dale Hearn had me a toga, toga, toga slide. I just didn't have time for it because the Romans are wearing togas. You know what the Germans wear? Trousers. Vederhosen, no. <laughs> Trousers. Uh, there's difference in law. There's difference in food. The, the Germans are much more rural instead of central. These are the changes that come out of what we call the Dark Ages in the medieval society as Rome falls. But the changes are not only in society. The changes affect the church as well. Because while Rome starts dividing up into little areas where the little kings can run it or the little feudal system where the lords have their authority, there's still this international government, if you will, of the church. And so the church takes on more power as an international government. Much more, more all of a sudden you're going to see the papacy in Rome really grow in its authority and power. And the church is going to assume the governmental church functions. It'll be the church that does the educating. Because there really aren't schools anymore. People don't live in the big cities anymore. Rome had millions of people at this point in time. That doesn't happen anymore. And so you don't have the environment where you've got education that's, con- that, that, that's readily available. And, and, and you enter the dark ages and people don't really read and people don't have scripture. Literacy changes. There are huge changes. But here are your points for home as we get to work through these changes. I want to tell you the truth. No one sees the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And it's just that simple. It's not a question of are you good enough to get in the kingdom on your own. Nobody is. If you don't see the kingdom if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You see the kingdom if you're born again. If you die with Christ and you put on his life and his righteousness. That's how you see the kingdom. Peter says it this way. You've been born again, he's writing to Christians, not of perishable seed, he's writing to the kingdom, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For, and he quotes Isaiah 40 here, verse 8, all men are like grass, earthly kingdoms are like grass. All their glories like the flowers of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fall or fade. But God and his word do not. The Word of God is ultimately Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ stands forever and so does His kingdom. And not only does it stand forever, but there will come a day where it will be the visible kingdom. And that's the final point from Revelation. 
John has this vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from he- out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. The old order of things has passed away. And that day is coming. And I'm excited to go into that kingdom one day with you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we stand at a unique place in history, able to look back and see the way your hand has moved, learn lessons from what you have done, but also excited, as Damon said, to live in the present and to look with an eye toward the future, recognizing right now you're writing history with our lives. It is my prayer, Lord, that everyone in here, all of our family, all of our friends, all of our loved ones will be in your kingdom, will be born again through the blood of Jesus Christ, eternally yours eternally together. Through Jesus I pray, amen.